everyone, welcome back to the Leadership Podcast with myself and Adrielle Parker. We are a podcast that talks about the social responsibility of business, and boy, do we have a lot to talk about this week. I feel like that needs to be our tagline. (laughs) (laughs) We do the deep dive into company bullshit, so you don't have to. There you go. There you go. That's our tagline. Yeah, that's great. That's great. How are you doing this week, my friend? It's been a rough week, um, but you know, pushing through. It's it's I don't know. So many things are changing so quickly, um, especially in the DEI space, which, as you know, or if you're new to our pod, that is where I spend most of my time. So that's been pretty rough. I've had a lot of people within my network losing roles, um, losing their jobs. Um, yeah, I've it's getting seen, bad. Yeah, it's it's been pretty bad. I see some people that have been unemployed for some time and haven't found any luck or had any luck getting jobs. And then um, I myself have had clients that have just dropped like flies. So it's been a lot of change very rapidly all at once. And it's pretty scary because it's like, okay, if I want to go back to a full-time role, can I even find a full-time role? Um, so and I've looked at a few things and it and none of them are appealing. Although there was one role at TikTok that I was like, this is kind of cool. So TikTok, if you're listening, give me a shout. Oh, yeah. Um, nice. But yeah. But other than that, there haven't. I Yeah. But like 500 plus applicants in less than 24 hours. <laughs> so it's like I feel like a uh, yikes, a, a pit in a haystack. But um, yeah, I at this point, I'm just like working with the clients that I have, exploring other things. I think one of the beautiful things about this entrepreneurial journey that I've been on is that I have been forced to learn a lot of different skills that have absolutely nothing to do with DEI, um, like social and creating you know, graphics and video editing for YouTube and all sorts of things. So um, that is, you know, a saving grace, I, I'd like to think. Um, I'm actually starting to do content creation for some random company through discord so all is not lost all is not lost yeah i also just appreciate how like every week if you're shitty you're just like yeah i'm i'm bad like you don't you're not (laughs) yeah i'm not gonna lie i can't even you don't don't play into this like (laughs) i'm gonna pretend like i'm fine if i'm not fine you're just like no this week's bad because then when you say oh it's been a good week then i actually believe you it's just like it's so anti-american (laughs) it is but yeah i'm very real like people are like how are you i'm like shitty like i mean yeah so if i'm not my user chipper self i'm like this is why i like to give people a heads up because i'm usually pretty like you know energetic and i try to think positively as much as possible it's more real yeah it's more real i appreciate that sure how are you I'm okay. Um, I'm coming to at you from my travel mic again. We're doing <laughs> our annual week up in Wisconsin. Uh, we do a like week week getaway. My father in law's got a cabin on a lake, and we usually at least yeah. at least once a year come up here for a week. The kids play around out Aww. outdoors. I would say I just it's really nice to be be outdoors. Like even though I'm usually mm-hmm. working while everyone else is playing, want want. Um, just being out in the woods and like having, you know, what is it the like touching grass, quote unquote, like having some, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> some nature, I think it just makes a big, big change for your like mental health just to every Definitely. once in a while get out of the city, you know? Yeah, for sure. I felt that when I was uh, in Vermont recently, which shout out to Vermont, they've had some rough weather, like floods, like we've never seen before. Oh, so God. 
Sending all the the good energy. What a vibes what a good way. transition to all our climate news this <laughs> I week. I know, right? You've seen this? Oh. Like the Earth is getting hotter. We had we had I think four of the hottest days on record in a row in July so far. Yep. And then there Definitely was this uh, <laughs> story this morning in the Times about the Florida's ocean temperatures getting up into the, like ninety degrees, which is my goodness, not great for like ocean wildlife. Absolutely, it's not Absolutely. great in light of. <laughs> what we were talking about what was it last week or the week before about esg potential like the backlash about esg but like there was some research that came out this last week that was basically saying 60 percent of companies are not matching esg claims with actual action and there was also a separate right. report from nasdaq saying half of board members are reporting they're lacking skills to address climate issues within their company so from two different angles we're basically seeing how people aren't really prepared to deal with environmental factors um, at the corporate level. Not at all. I mean, I think it's beyond just the corporate level. Even I think outside of that, folks are uh, at a loss as to how we're supposed to be dealing with this, which is pretty scary. Yeah, like at the political level, at the personal level, it does feel overwhelming. It can feel like it can feel like there's nothing to do. Which is like the, the the worst case scenario, right? Where we're just like, we take this cynical approach to it where it just feels like, oh, well, there's nothing we can do. I guess we're just going to sit back and watch the world burn. Let's not do that. Yeah. Let's not do that. Leaders, please don't, please, please figure this stuff out because we, we need it. I would like to have more summers up in the woods of Wisconsin without, you know, Canadian wildfires and such ruining our time. Right. Ugh. Fingers crossed. Yeah, please don't fall victim to analysis paralysis. We need y'all to help us sort this out. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Um, on the, on the uh, I guess, adjacent topic, we had some interesting EV news this week. I don't know if you saw this, that unsold electric cars are starting to pile up on dealer lots. Yeah, I did see that, which is very interesting considering Rivian seems to be doing well, which is an EV. Mm-hmm competitor to tesla so i'm like where are their cars going what what are they doing with the stock well rivian's stock like comparatively to tesla is so much lower like they're still they're still an upstart like they had a bunch of production issues during the pandemic when they first rolled out and they're just they're just like now catching up um so Mm -hmm. i feel like they had unmet demand whereas tesla and some of the other ev makers have been around a long time i think have just now more stock than they actually have demand for so it's interesting. You've got uh, like this red hot EV market that is, you know, everyone's talking about EVs. You've got all this, um, you know, uh, subsidies for EVs to actually produce them, but they're still super expensive. So you still right, don't have right. very many consumers that can actually afford them. Makes sense. Absolutely. What else do we have in the news this week? We've got some. Huge social media news that I'm going to talk about in a minute and my deep dive um, around the launch of Meta's Threads, which I think we previewed last week, but has been around now for a week and is is actually getting a lot of traction. But related to yeah, social definitely. media, um, there was a landmark deal between the EU and the US this week around data sharing. And this has been in the works for a long time. It's basically reconciling how a lot of the companies asking for European data are based in the U.S. 
Um, but it's but it's it's a pretty broad deal that includes not only you know data coming from technology companies, but um, it's kind of reconciling what Edward Snowden started around like how the U.S. intelligence agencies deal with data as well. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm wondering if this is going to smooth out some of the, especially some of Meta's headaches around privacy that have been, um, they've been really running into EU regulators lately. Yeah, I'm curious to see what this is like. I'll never forget when the, uh, when there was that rollout of GDPR a few years ago, everyone was panicking. Even the company I was at at Mm -hmm. the time was freaking out and we had to like go through all of these meetings and change management processes to ensure that we weren't going to be fine. So I imagine similarly, businesses are kind of having a bit of a panic attack about this now and trying to think through how they're going to ensure they meet regulation. Yeah, I mean, the EU has just been pushing us on so many fronts when it comes to regulating technology. I mean, there was another story this week about pending AI legislation, um, you know, and we're obviously generative AI especially is pretty hot right now. And people are talking about how to incorporate it in their work. And the EU is basically saying, nope, and it's trying to like put some guardrails around it that are, again, kind of retroactively affecting US, the US market and US companies. You've seen this happen on, on AI and technology, on social media, on ESG regulation, uh, GDPR, like you said, like it just, I think we, we've gotten to the point where Europe is regulating us for us. And it's, I think it's kind of embarrassing. Like we really, we've really got to catch up. It is pretty embarrassing, but I'm glad they're doing it. Someone needs to do it because, I mean, otherwise, who knows where we'll end up. I mean, we've talked about it quite a bit on this pod um, in terms of the potential harm and dangers of AI and, you know, other tech um, tools and, and um, approaches. So, yeah, I'm glad they're they're doing something. It's, it's just kind of funny. It's like a, someone's mom coming over to wag the finger and be like, do this now. <laughs> <laughs> like, it is. Europe has been like the the adult in the room with with the U.S. just doing whatever we want for a long time. I yeah. mean, we just we just do not regulate well here. We we have it since not the Reagan area, basically. Yeah. <sighs> um. So what else we got? So actually, speaking of AI, did you read this story about Sarah Silverman and other artists suing OpenAI, Meta, and other companies for copyright infringement? I did. It seems like OpenAI has been hit with a number of lawsuits recently, which is does not sound good at all. Yeah, I mean, we've talked around the issues around copyright and creative, you know, infringement on this pod quite a bit. It's interesting this tactic that they're taking, which they're basically like coming at it more from the artist's angle. I, I wonder if this is going to work. I saw someone on Threads, ironically, this week say this is the equivalent of like a a publisher suing a fifth grader for doing a book report and calling that oh copyright infringement. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know if this will have a legal standing, but it does, to your point, feel like OpenAI is getting it from a lot of different angles because people are realizing what these models are trained on. Right, right. That's interesting. That's an interesting comparison. I mean, I guess. I don't know. I, I, I get it, though. Like, your <laughs> art is, is such a... it's. For a lot of artists, they consider their art their babies. So I understand the the need or desire to protect it and to, you know, if nothing else, even if it doesn't go anywhere, I think it, it does just shine a light on what could potentially happen in the future in terms of 
uh, artists being protected and folks using or taking advantage of their work um, through AI. Yeah, and I I think the big difference in that analogy is that in theory, if a if a student is doing a book report on a book, they've bought the book, right? Whereas right. like there isn't a lot of permission happening in terms of how these AI models are trained. Like they're not, we've, we've talked about this before. They're not, we're not really giving them permission to read and scan, you know, thousands and thousands of pieces of content that we put on the internet for years. Well, to be fair, I was just reading an article <laughs> where students were saying that they are using way more AI and chat GPT than we think. So it's possible that they didn't <laughs> buy the book and that they just hopped on chat GPT and asked it to write a report or Bard. And basically what they've been doing is just, you know, uh, modifying a few words, sentences, et cetera. And there's the book report. So I don't know. Yeah, that's that's a good point. I love that you keep throwing Bard in there. Like you keep throwing Bard a, a bone. And I just I'm like, is anyone using Google's Bard? I'm not I'm not convinced. I am. Is it, is it actually I am being used? Are you? I am because well, so recently chat GPT uh, disconnected the internet. And so when I need something that is like current, I, it, it always hits me with Oh, well, our knowledge only goes up to 2021. And I'm like, I need you to know what happened yesterday. Okay, so Bard ah, has been helpful a good for point. that. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Do you um are you a paid Chat GPT subscriber? Is is it different for paid subscribers? Um, I am paid, and I, I think it just uh, moves faster. I think that so they claim. Sometimes they hit you with some limits, though, depending you know for Chat GPT four, which is the more advanced model. Um, but yeah, I've been a paid user for some time now. I love Chat GPT. I think it's really interesting. I, you know, if all else fails, I guess I could get into AI prompting because I certainly have spent a lot of time with with our dear friend Chat GPT. <laughs> There's your next revenue stream. Then you're going to become a uh, Chat GPT consultant, chat, an AI yeah. AI chatbot advisor. For sure, for sure. All right, two two last stories where we get into our deep dives that um, I think are fascinating. One is, did you see Apple is cutting its outlook for the Vision Pro and is planning on starting to sell them by appointment only? So you can only, you have to what? come in and some are saying like, you'll have to get an eye scan before you even come in. And then, and then you'll come in and they'll like do the whole demo for you. Interesting. Why do you need to get the eye scan ahead of time? That's really interesting. I don't know. I I don't. I think this is speculation. So I'm not sure that they'll actually okay. do this. But there are definitely lots of reports about it being by appointment only, and that some some people are saying you'll have to like do the whole. You know, the when it, when it came out and when it debuted, that that was how they kind of fit it to your uh, particular um, face and I think your your eye movements to make it like as smooth as possible. Um, mm -hmm. so I, I don't know exactly how it's going to work, but I think it's fascinating that they're basically saying we're not going to produce as many units as we thought we were going to, like they're already kind of rolling it back. Do you think they missed the boat here on the quote unquote metaverse? And that's why they're saying we're not expecting this to sell as much. I know this was a kind of a delayed product and it took them a long time to get it to market. You know, I'm not sure. I So many things are, are running through my mind right now. One is the price point of the headset, which I believe they expected or people just were shocked by. I don't think many folks expected it to be so expensive. Um, 
but I, on one hand, I'm like excited that they're not just mass producing a bunch of these things and hoping they sell, especially given all of the climate change issues that we're facing. Um, but I do think this adds an extra layer of, or an extra barrier to making it accessible. Um, but we've had the other VR headsets around for some time now, so I don't know how eager people are to get them. So maybe they missed it to answer your original question. Um, but, yeah, maybe. you know, we were just, I think we were talking about this in the last episode, how we enjoy how fluid Apple products are. Like you can transition so seamlessly. And so I think a lot of people also feel that way and would be inclined to still invest in something like this. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's going to be fascinating to watch. I know that, you know, it's definitely more focused on developers right now. I think it's called pro for a reason, but I don't know. It's like Apple so rarely misses when it comes to products. Like you could say things like the Apple watch didn't sell as well out of the gate as they wanted to, or like some things or like the home pod, for example, not as successful as they wanted. And they, they kind of pulled it back and then they reintroduced it recently, like the bigger home pod, which is fascinating to me. But right. I don't know, like if anyone can do this right, I feel like Apple could. And I feel like they were right to not actually ever say the word metaverse or even like virtual reality, mm. right? Like they're really trying to create spatial computing as like the thing and make a market around spatial computing. Yeah, I'm I'm really curious to see what happens with it. I don't know. I think they're I think at some point it's going to be successful and do fairly well. I think they're going to figure out a way to integrate all of these products. And then we're all going to be like, oh my gosh, I need a Vision Pro. I really think it's coming. <laughs> I I mean, I, I am positive that if I tried it, I would say that. And then my wife yeah. would be like, absolutely <laughs> not. And I'd be like, no, but I need it. I need it for work. I need it for work. Adriel and I are, are doing some, some whiteboarding sessions with our Vision Pros. There you go. That's how I would justify it. it. Uh, you know, I'll try to back you up on it, but no guarantee it'll work. <laughs> we'll see. Um, okay, last story before we get into our deep dives, because I just this whole story I find just so interesting. So did you see this? Have you been following the Barbie controversy, the controversy around the Barbie movie with the, uh, map, I, the map issue? I saw something about it in passing, but I didn't really look into it. There's been so much Barbie ness <laughs> in my feeds my social feeds it's a little the marketing budget the marketing budget for the barbie movie has got to be insane right I can't like even i just i feel like i've been hearing zeros. about this movie non-stop for six months yes like it it's ridiculous i mean i've seen barbie branding everywhere i think we just had in here in new york there's like a barbie diner something pop-up that's going on there's a barbie mansion that is like beautifully designed like an actual mansion somewhere i think in california They're, they invested a lot of money in this a lot yeah so tell me about this map. so the controversy <laughs> the controversy came from a map that is shown in the movie in basically behind the characters in a scene and it's a world map and Adriel, if you look at this world map, it looks like a child has drawn it. Like, that's why I think this oh, controversy is <laughs> so weird. It's like, it looks like a child. I think it's intentionally meant to look kind of childish. But the controversy is because there's a part of the map that that um, depicts a disputed part of the South China Sea, where China claims territory. It's called the Nine Dash Line. 
And it basically, the reason why it's controversial is because China claims that this is their territory and a bunch of other countries who are in that region do not recognize it, including Vietnam and other countries that ended up banning this movie from their country because of this map in the background. And now you've got like Republicans and other people saying that the they did this on purpose or like trying to trying to claim that they were trying to take a a stand and and basically make their their movie China friendly. And let let's stipulate that that could be the case. Like they China is a huge huge market for American movies. And mm-hmm. so you could see a scenario where the producers of this movie intentionally tried to give a nod to China so that this would play in China. Because if they'd done the opposite, if they had not shown this nine dash line, maybe China would have been the one ban- banning them. But like, to me, that let, let, I mean, peel back the layers. One, why put this map in the movie at all if that's going to be a thing? Like, it <laughs> seems like you could just have avoided the controversy altogether by not putting a world map in the movie at all. Right. But isn't it... Like, I just find it fascinating how we are now debating this, like, geopolitical nonsense about the Barbie movie. This the Barbie movie, Adriel. one of the most bizarre stories I've seen in a while. I was just scrolling through and looking at, the, like, it, first of all, Bar- this whole movie is fictional. So it's just like, how did they even make this connection? And I imagine in the movie, they're not, like, zooming into the map and focused on it. Um, this is wow. I also see that um, Vietnam's authorities are also inspecting the website of Blackpink's tour operator. Blackpink is the K-pop group uh, because the website allegedly has a map that displays the nine dash line. That is wow. I, they don't have anything else to do. Like <laughs> we have a lot of problems in the world. Like this, what? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to I mean this is this is where it gets so weird like I don't want to ever tell people in the South China Sea who are dealing with this like geopolitical conflict with China that this kind of stuff isn't important. It's just from right. the like business standpoint it seems like so easy to a- avoid a controversy like this. Yeah, they probably didn't even think about it. I I'm sure I, that that to me that's why I find this whole like Republican narrative around this, like kind of eye rolly, because I'm like, why would you do this on purpose? To me, this is just, it probably was just carelessness. It doesn't surprise me that no one called this out because it, this is this is like one of those issues we talk about all the time when you need representation and why representation matters. And so um, an organization, this is, I guess this movie has been rolled out by Warner Bros, which has been notoriously uh, guilty for not having representation if you ask me um there are so many articles out there i've 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 actually seen uh someone in the dei space do a whole like dissertation almost about um just like the lack of representation even in like their visuals so when they show like the the uh, posters for the movies and things like that they're very strategic about how they place people of color like in the background the side the lighting it's really interesting but all that aside, um, it does not surprise me that they didn't have anyone on their team to be like, hey, about that map, we probably should not include that um, in this movie that is going to be rolled out on a global scale that we want to 
um, you know, actually be able to show in a place like Vietnam. So not surprising. Yeah, uh, good context on Warner Brothers, because I hadn't even realized that. But that's, mm-hmm. that's a totally good point. But I do think it's it is fascinating about like the amount of inclusion in terms of global representation that a global movie studio really needs in, right. in order to be successful in every single different culture and every single different market. I'm honestly surprised we don't run into this kind of thing more often. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe it happens, but maybe it's more subtle and people just don't notice it. And perhaps because this map was like right there in the screen, people called it out. Who knows? Well, that was a lot. <laughs> Again, this should be just the uh, just the uh, the title of our news segment. What a week. Um, let's go into our deep dives. <laughs> what are you deep diving on for us this week, Adriel? I am going to be talking about the black unemployment rate. Um, It has for the second consecutive month increased um, despite our overall unemployment rate in the U.S. being historically low, about 3.5% on average. um, It is not that low for black individuals, for black Americans. And this month or June, we're now in July, but in June, um, it was recorded that it jumped up six percent so i'll be talking about that today um yeah looking forward to get into that and and especially how it relates to this um uh, massive shift in dei unemployment um yes my deep dive is about surprise surprise threads you and i have been threading (laughs) this week back and forth um diving pretty deep into meta's new twitter competitor um, and I, I want to talk about the good and the bad of threads, but I kind of want to tie it into this idea that I've been reading about how the success of threads basically points to the idea of social media as we have conceptualized it as being mm. over. And, and what I mean by that mm. is it, the social media as this like utopian, like we're all going to come together, we're going to build this public square, quote unquote, which... Zuckerberg keeps saying threads is, is basically that's just not going to happen. Like we are going to keep doing the same ideas over and over again from the same companies. And those are the only ones that can be successful. I kind of want to pull that part, that idea apart because my career, a lot of my career has been in social media. You know, I was, I was an early Twitter adopter and loved Twitter for a long Mm -hmm. time. And there's just, Mm -hmm. I've got a lot of feels around this. I want to pull apart the feels. (laughs) Well, let's start with mine first so we can get that out of the way and then talk about the fun stuff that is threads. <laughs> Maybe fun. TBD. All right, TBD. let's get into it. All right, Adriel, why is black unemployment so much higher compared to the unemployment in the rest of the country? Oh, pull up a seat, Caleb. Let's get into it. So, (laughs) oh, there are so many factors that we can't even fully address in the short time that we have here today. But, um, you know, one thing I do want to address before I actually get into this is the number of articles and publications that are still using Black and African-American interchangeably absolutely grinds my gears. They are not the same thing. When we're talking about black, we're talking about race, which is typically uh, defined by, you know, things that we visually assess about people, which isn't always accurate, but, um, you know, things such as a person's skin tone, their hair texture, their nose shape. Um, We might even, you know, base race off of shared, you know, geographical ancestry. 
Um, and so that is black. Black is a race. African-American is an ethnicity, and that's usually defined by some sort of shared cultural uh, identification or expression. Sometimes it's regional. So um, typically, if people identify as African-American, they are identifying as ancestors of those that were enslaved in the States. So a lot of times, if you encounter someone who is Jamaican-American or Nigerian-American, they typically will not identify as African-American. So just wanted to put that out there because I'm like, we're nearing the middle of 2023 and there, it, I don't understand why we're still not pulling these apart. And it's important too, because there are some studies out there that show that within the black diaspora, different ethnicities experience different socioeconomic um, statuses and experiences, um, which is really fascinating and doesn't paint, when we look at the data that we have, where we collect just black slash African-American, we're not able to typically see from these, you know, general news reports, how different ethnic groups are, are being affected. Um, and so just wanted to call that out before we talk about the unemployment rate. Yeah, super important. On average, right now, we're around 3.5% on the unemployment rate, which is historically really low. Um, I'm still curious to see all the details within that because I just want to know why. I mean, I'm seeing so many people on my LinkedIn feed that are not employed, but and I also know people personally who are unemployed currently as well. So I'm like, well, how is it that low? Yeah, same. I feel like you and I know a lot of people who work in both DI, DEI and uh, tech, which is probably skewing how we view that a lot, right? That's true. That's true. But I'm also seeing other folks within the tech space that are currently unemployed. I've seen some people in media. Um, interestingly enough, a couple of government roles as well. But I think that could have been due to some restructuring, like local government in New York City. So I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Who knows how they're getting these numbers. Um, but yes, the rate for the rate for black workers is around 6%. Um, with that said, it's interesting because I was looking at a few other reports and they were talking about how the employment rate for black workers is only half a percentage below white workers right now, which is the closest it's ever been. Um, and so there are a lot mm. of black folks that are employed in the States. But as we keep unpeeling and the layers here, right, there is a significant and has historically always been a significant overrepresentation of black folks in low wage entry level jobs. And then black folks are typically underrepresented when we start looking at corporate America in like senior leadership roles, executive leadership roles. Um, in the private sector, it's estimated that um, I think they said they, they were projecting and they, by they, I mean, McKinsey, they did a study back in 2021. They estimated that it would take roughly 95 years for black folks to reach parity in the private sector, meaning to have roughly black folks make up about 12% of the U S population. So we think who knows if that's accurate because not everyone completes the census. Um, but it's estimated that it's 12%. And so in order to see 12 percent representation in the private sector in corporate America, it would take roughly 95 years. Um, and that assumes that we are moving along the same trajectory that we were in 2021, or I guess 2020, when they conducted the study, which we've seen has not been oh, the case. That's I wild. Mean, <laughs> yeah. Um, 
And so, you know, the higher you go within a corporate structure, typically you see fewer and fewer black employees. Um, And at the VP level, I think there's like 5%. At the senior VP level, roughly 4%. And at the very top, like, let's say 1% of Fortune 500 uh, spots are held by black leaders, which is very stark. There are some visuals of this where you can see they like, you know, those little infographics where they lay out 500 little tiny stick figures and they highlight just the 1% of black leaders. And it's very terrifying to see how few there are. Um, In general, it's terrifying to see how few non-white Fortune 500 CEOs there are. Um, It's, it's, really telling to see that visual and just kind of understand like the lay of the land. But, um, you know, with all of that said, we've seen greater representation of black executives over the past few years. And now we're seeing, you know, people get laid off or people leaving the corporate space for a variety of reasons. Um, we used to hear people say the glass ceiling lately. I've been hearing this thing called the glass cliff. Um, which is when people, especially black people, are being promoted into these high profile roles within the private sector. Um, but despite, you know, their skills, their experience, everything they know, et cetera, they aren't provided with enough resources to actually succeed and retain their roles. So there's a lack of mentorship, there's a lack of sponsorship. Um, there is not enough like professional development training for them. And so that, and then you combine that with, you know, uh, microaggressions and workplace discrimination amongst a variety of other things that people, black folks are dealing with outside of the workplace. People are in some cases voluntarily leaving. And so it's a hot mess. (laughs) It's just, it's all over the place, but there are just so many layers to this. Um, and I think there's such an opportunity for organizations to do more, to do a lot more to not only hire, but also retain, uh, black professionals. But I don't know if anyone's hearing me. (laughs) I've been saying this for years. The thousands and thousands of listeners to leadership are hearing you, Adriel. Um, I guess uh, I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around how we solve this problem, given that we are pulling back on DEI resources. Because there are like the there's the hiring issue, which we've talked about is going to be litigated now and is going to be, you know, how we actually measure that and how we actually you know, sent bitch marks and goals there, you know, is going to get harder. But then the retention issue, I feel like we can definitely focus on, right? But we just, we still need the resources to be able to do it. I saw an interesting Mm -hmm. um, article talking about the, the impact of the Supreme Court decision. And it was basically like, you can still like, take the hiring part off the table. Let's let's pause on that for now. But think about all the things you can do to still address unconscious bias in your organization or like help people be more inclusive. Like that's training that everyone needs. That doesn't even doesn't even right. need to target just the um, you know underrepresented or marginalized people in your in your company. Like there's things that you can still do for the entire company. But yeah, you you've got to resource against it, and you've got to like put budget toward it. And so we can't we can't fully pull away from this idea of being more inclusive as a company just because we're scared of some right wing backlash, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And 
One thing I didn't mention is that a lot of these black professionals that are being hired into VP and SVP roles are often in DEI and support type roles like head of people, head of HR. Um, You don't see a lot of like VPs in like tech roles or sales or things outside of DEI, which is also important to note considering how many organizations have been laying off DEI senior leaders as well as sort of just pushing them out. Um, I agree. Yes, I think there is so much opportunity. (laughs) It is bullshit. Um, I think there's so much opportunity right now for organizations to do a better job of educating folks. And, um, you know, I think that a lot of organizations have been stuck on these sort of old school approaches to DEI. Um, And I talked about this actually earlier this week, just yesterday um, on my series DEI in five, but I see so many people still wanting to come up with 12 to 24 month plans, 36 to 48 month plans for DEI. And that is not going to work right now. The the DEI space is just entirely too volatile, the political climate as well. Um, And there's also just a lot going on within the workforce. And so you need a little bit shorter term and you also need to be listening to people, right? And so one organization's issue is not going to be the same as another organization. So going in and doing these sort of like cookie cutter out of the box educational trainings doesn't work very well. Like we really need to be listening to the needs of the people and organizations right now and tailoring our education to that. And so in some instances, it might be unconscious bias, but you also need to understand how people receive information within your workplace. So going in and just telling people that they have bias or unconscious bias and then saying, here's the science behind it. Here's what you need to do to fix it. Now go do it. Doesn't really work. (laughs) Like people need practical Mm -hmm. examples. People need language that they understand that is already a part of their existing ecosystem, the, the existing culture. So I don't see enough people doing that and having real conversations and bringing real practical examples to these sessions that are actually useful. And because that hasn't been done, so many people hear unconscious bias training and they're like, oh, we don't need that. That's useless. Like it doesn't do anything. And if you're not doing it right, it does not do anything. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of money. Um, I also think there is power in dedicated or, or kind of directing your energy towards people leaders as, as a starting point, because I know a lot of people are like, we don't have the funds. We don't have the budget to educate everyone. That's fine. Start with your people leaders. Those are the folks that are helping you keep folks together. Those are the folks that are uh, defining and reinforcing the culture. So if you can educate your people leaders as a starting point, you're already a step ahead of a lot of other organizations. Um, Unfortunately, as always, history repeats itself. We see people, uh, we see organizations cutting DEI, learning and development, professional development first before anything else when times are hard. And I think, you know, given the current state of the economy, inflation, even though they say it's lowered, I think is still an issue for a lot of organizations. I mean, such good practical tips. I just want to like boil that down because I feel like you covered so much ground and obviously this is uh, your area of expertise but like one we are in such a volatile environment that we need consistent resourcing against this in a way that sometimes is hard to plan for and so it's not just we can't just have DEI in a box right now we have to be adaptable to the market environment 
I think that is super important. The other was um, not feeling like one training, one workshop, one, you know, thing is going to really do it. Like it needs, again, consistent resourcing to constantly um, help people basically build the muscle memory around being more inclusive, around understanding their own biases. Um, And that's another part of just not having a BDEI in a box. But all of this takes consistent investment. And I'm really ready for us to get to the point where we see, you know, in the tech world, you'll appreciate this coming from tech. In the tech world, we've got this Mm -hmm. idea of minimum viable product. And Mm -hmm. I've really started thinking around, what does it mean for us to have a minimum viable organization? And Mm, at what point are we going to see, like, resourcing against this as part as just part of our operating you know like as just part of existing as a company in the world like i'm tired of us again i feel like it gets cut because we see it as an add-on as a nice to have at what point yes. is it going to have to be a need to have absolutely and it the thing is it is a need to have but i think because of the language a lot of people just can't process or understand DEI. And because of what they've seen historically, they don't think that DEI is a necessity, right? Um, there's been, historically, we've had so much attention and focus on programmatic DEI efforts. So things like, you know, just thinking about having speakers come in or celebrating heritage months. Um, workshops can even fall under programmatic efforts. But there's an overlap with with workshops and education where it still has to kind of tie into your more strategic efforts and thinking about the systems and processes that exist within your organization and how they affect people. Um, I've considered for some time even just changing or shifting my title and taking DEI out of it because I can't tell you how many times I have coaching sessions, I've facilitated workshops or just had like strategy development sessions with people and we go through different things and they're like, I had no idea this was part of DEI. And I'm like, yes, like thinking about how you (laughs) give and receive feedback to a person is part of DEI. Thinking about how you structure your one-on-one meetings with your direct reports is part of DEI, right? But people don't see it that way because, again, historically, our brains have just kind of been programmed to think that DEI is just this add-on, check the box, we have to celebrate Pride Month, Women's History Month, um, and go to this unconscious bias training, and that's it. It's so much more than that. And so I, I really hope that we can start to expand people's sort of perception of what it is so that they can more easily integrate it into their work or just simply acknowledge it that it acknowledge that it's already a part of their work and that they just have to be intentional about what they're doing to ensure equity and inclusion in diverse workspaces. 100%. I love that. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, and now that we've solved that, <laughs> should we talk about solving the world's in- problems instagram yeah <laughs> should we talk about threads and what it yes. means for our new social media environment this was like the highlight of my week <laughs> yeah we both signed up I, did you sign up the first day i think i signed up in the first two hours but like coincidentally yeah i signed up i think it was the maybe i don't know if it was the first day i I know i signed up at night and then i stayed up until like an ungodly hour um like a deer in the headlights exploring threads yeah so there was this there's 
so it's been out a week now, listeners, if you have not already signed up. So you, you know, you haven't missed the boat. It's just Adriel and I are masochistic and tend to sign up for these things early. Um, but uh, there was this fascinating life cycle that's even played out over this last week where the first day you sign up and it's David Armano called it a high school reunion. And I just feel like that's such a good um <laughs> you know, like illustration because everyone's just like, you're here. Oh, you're here. You know, and it's just like, you're seeing all your friends, especially at the the first day. I was like, oh my God, all these people I used to talk to on Twitter are here now who either didn't right. stop using Twitter or Twitter buries them um, and, you know, surfaces other people I don't want to see. And so the yes. first day was literally just like this reunion of, oh, we're trying this now. And then you have, of course, people being like, do we have to do this one too? Because I'm on Mastodon and I'm on Blue Sky and I'm on Post and I'm on Spill. And it's like, yeah, unfortunately. Um, but because so many people started to sign up, it became, it got critical mass pretty fast. And if you don't know anything about mm -hmm. this, let me, let me just back up and tell you a little bit about it. Threads is built off of Instagram. I think that is both a smart brand move on Meta's part because people love Instagram and they don't, don't love Facebook. Um, mm -hmm. so it was, it's built off of the Instagram social graph. So it actually is taking your name from Instagram and, and it, the accounts are so interrelated that you actually can't delete your threads account right now without also deleting your Instagram account. Eventually that won't be the case they've said, but they are very related. So you're basically porting over your Instagram social graph, which meant that threads had an immediate advantage over blue sky or mastodon or any of these that are starting to build because they had an immediate social graph and an immediate network now there has been some <laughs> hilarity ensuing in that the people that you follow on instagram are not always the people you want to have twitter like conversations with like one <laughs> people who are great at at you know visual social or like you know, have built up followings on, on Instagram aren't always the most interesting people to follow their thoughts along during the day. Like a lot of them don't have a lot of things to say. Let's just be honest. Two sure. is that I know a lot of people who had built their Instagram social graph intentionally different than they had built their Twitter social graph, which meant it was like very friends and family or very like casual. Whereas the people they had built up on Twitter were a lot more either professional or if they were journalists, like a lot of sources or a lot of other journalists. And so there's a mm -hmm. difference in those social graphs that has played out really interestingly. But very quickly, if you were like me, you were kind of digging in and trying to find the people that you wanted to follow who are interesting to follow that maybe you were following on Twitter and you were trying to rebuild that social graph. They imported a lot of celebrities and brands at the beginning just to make it seem interesting and hip and Someone argued to seem like they had a proximity to power, which Meta absolutely does. I mm -hmm. don't know that that was the best move because it made everyone's feed really noisy at the beginning. And everyone was kind of like, who are all these randos that is filling my feed? I think that they are starting to adjust the algorithm a little bit now to, for that not to be the case. But I also like muted a ton of those myself <laughs> and started following mm -hmm. the people I actually wanted to follow. So my feed has gotten a lot better. But this, it grew from... I think 30 million in the first day to more than 100 million within the first week. And so yeah. the competitive pressure they started to put on Twitter was almost immediate. You saw this incredible like public tantruming from Musk over the last <laughs> week that has just been completely embarrassing. Right. I think the the weirdest thing about this Adriel is that 
are we all cheering for Mark Zuckerberg now? Like, what is this alternative reality we have found ourselves in where we're going, (laughs) yay meta? Like, I'm just, I'm so confused, but also, like, feel a little relieved that I've got, like, a place that, like, uh, something to scratch that itch of Twitter that I used to have, you know? But, like, did I sign up for a new product from meta and like got really excited about it it's so weird so weird yeah weird times weird i mean i'm i've definitely been rooting for zuck (laughs) this past week at least um i don't know it's i i i don't think i've experienced anything quite like this before or at least i feel like people were comparing it to back in the day when we all first joined Facebook or like MySpace, um, before social was so tied to advertising and before all of the bots became a part of it and before all of the uh, UGC, user-generated content started taking over, um, which I feel is more prevalent over the past year or so. So it's been really interesting to to be a part of and I like the uh the comparison to the reunion because similarly there were so many people that I was seeing pop up in this feed um from Instagram and Twitter that I haven't seen and I can't tell you how long and that was a result of the the algorithm just burying them I was like oh my gosh I forgot this person even existed which has been interesting because it's like they've been doing all these great things. And I'm like, I, I needed to see this, I guess. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's been a wild ride. And I feel like people are still not quite sure what to do with threads just yet. Some folks are like, am I just here to shoot the shit? Am I here to promote something? Am I here to share news and updates? So yeah, I'm not quite sure what to make of it just yet. I just, I saw those comparisons too about like early Twitter or early other social networks, but it really isn't like that because of the Instagram Mm -hmm. integration. Like you did not have a hundred million users within a week of any of those platforms. And you definitely didn't have like a built-in social graph. Like all the other ones you had to start from scratch. And I I saw a friend of mine on, on threads actually saying like, I miss when social at the beginning was about like, the weird and the unexpected and there's nothing weird and unexpected here because of how we have poured it in a social network that already existed and this is kind of gets into the article i wanted to share related to this which is on the atlantic by the journalists charlie charlie warzel and ian bogust oh god i'm sure i butchered your name and i'm sorry (laughs) it's called zombie twitter has arrived and this was written late (laughs) last week after threads had been around for a couple days and basically, the the argument that they make, why they call it zombie Twitter, is because, mm-hmm. I mean, A, it's just so obviously meant to steal the experience of Twitter. It's not exactly the same, but Zuckerberg read the market opportunity and said, people are pissed at Elon Musk, and they need a place to land, and we've got the infrastructure to do it. And you know what? He was right. Like, the, the Musk, Musk schadenfreude of <laughs> on threads this last <laughs> week has been intense like people are just so Mm -hmm. celebratory that they have a place to have the same pre-musk experience right Mm -hmm. so that's a reason why it's zombie twitter the other reason is that it's the same idea and this is what they had really gotten at at the heart of the argument which is that are we really at the point in social media that 
we're just recycling the same ideas. That's why zombie mm-hmm. Twitter is like, oh, we're just we're just gonna do the same thing over again. We're not even gonna pretend like there's any product innovation or anything new that we're doing here. Sure. And have we reached the yeah. point where the social media industry is so dominated by the same players and the same ideas that there actually isn't a lot of room or even desire for innovation? Like, are we just are we just gonna keep playing the same playbook? You know? Yeah, maybe so. I, huh, I didn't even think about it in that way. Um, the the domination piece is really standing out to me because it's so true. Like, um, oh my goodness, what is the the smaller one that po- the spill app? I feel like the spill app, their timing was rough. Like they all of a sudden like exploded just before threads released and people were like scrambling to get their usernames. And now this week I haven't heard a thing about spill. I know it's just so unfortunate. Right. I think that was started by two ex Twitter employees, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and so, yeah, I don't even know if there's room for anyone to really start any smaller players to really spill is to start anything and if so what would it look like and what would make it different i mean we've seen so many like small apps pop up here and there but few of them have stuck um and few of them are popping up with anything new or different and i think even if people were to bring something new or different to the table i don't know that folks have the capacity to be on another social media platform i think there's such a need to have more human interactions in person right now that I don't know that I I honestly don't even know how how far we'll get with threads I mean I was excited about threads for like the first three days now I just I barely spend five minutes on it (laughs) because I'm like it's starting to look like my Twitter feed though um there's a lot of overlap and just how people are starting to share information. Like I'm starting to see news articles on my threads feed, which was not the case a couple days ago. Um, and so once I started seeing that, I'm right. like, Oh, it's well, I can just go back to Twitter. It's- yeah. And my Twitter feed is, I mean, I've been on there for years, so it's very well curated to the things I'm interested in. So I'd rather just go there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think this is what, what's fascinating. So it is, it's normalizing to the point where people are now, like the first couple days, of course, all the conversations were just about threads. It was this like navel gazing mm-hmm. about what are we doing here? But right now it's starting to feel a little bit more like the Twitter feed um, in that mm-hmm. people are talking about other things, um, which I think is mm-hmm. beautiful and fun. And it's still somewhat lighthearted. I don't know that that will last, um, but it's 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 feeling like a place people are going to a destination. And it's it's definitely feeling like. The people who wanted to find that kind of connection on Twitter and couldn't find it in the Musk era are now finding it on Threads. I think right. the strategic mistake that the Threads team is making, in my opinion, is that they aren't trying to build the Twitter of 2008 or the early kind of magic of the Twitter mm-hmm. space. And this is really, to me, pre-Twitter going public, was that it did feel like this global water cooler, this... Somebody called it a um, a massive online player chat, right? Like where it's just like you're just talking about what's going on in the world that day. And it's like, this is my connection to the broader world. It had a sure. vibrant third party ecosystem. It had a reverse chronological feed. It was very real time. And what happened was 
after they went public in 2013, they switched it to an algorithmic-driven feed because they needed Mm -hmm. to sell advertising and they needed to grow like crazy. And they did. They had a cultural moment between like 2013 to 2015-ish, I would say, where they were very much in the public conversation. They were very much driving the cultural narrative. And it was pre-Trump kind of taking it over and showing how all of that could be used for evil. You know what I mean? Hmm. And so... That's the Twitter that 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 they're aiming for is the pre-Trump post going public Twitter. And I think they should be aiming for that pre going public Twitter where it isn't all about celebrity and the loudest voices in the room and and, you know, just like following, I don't know, like your favorite uh, actors and celebrities and journalists. All that's good. I'm not Mm -hmm. saying it shouldn't be there. But when it becomes mostly about that, I think that's when you get a lot of inactive users. Because it doesn't seem like there's anything I can contribute as a regular user to that conversation. It doesn't become about my own social graph or the people that I'm interested in following or having conversation with. The global water cooler thing becomes more of a myth than reality because it becomes the loudest voices in the room talking to each other and the rest of us kind of just being like all right, like passive consumers. And I think that Threads right. is, is going to have that same kind of monthly active user problem if they continue to go in this direction. That's my prediction. I can see that. I can see that, especially with the the fact that you can see likes and replies. And, I, you know, I think that makes a difference too and ties into what you're talking about with the celebrity and like the loudest voices in the room. Like I'm starting to see... Or, Early on, the first couple of days, like you said, people were kind of trying to figure it out. Now, like I'm just kind of passively looking at my my threads feed right now, and I'm seeing so many. Do you call it a rethread, a repost? I don't know what to call it, but way more <laughs> reposts and less original content now. More sharing of links, external links, um, and so that's. Or I think that is part of now that you're calling my attention to it. I'm like, yes, I think that's part of why I'm like, why am I here when this already exists on a different platform? Um, so yeah, I I agree. They have to do something different. Um, I think it's interesting that they don't have any sort of like uh, hashtag situation going or trending topics. But again, I think if they do that, that would make them like all the other platforms. So yeah, we'll yeah, see what happens. I think that would. I think trending topics especially would add a lot more toxicity to the platform because people game mm-hmm. that shit. Like I would yep. I would rather them not do trending topics. I think hashtags are important for like joining a conversation, but trending mm-hmm. topics all it becomes then is just about like trying to be the news of the day or trying to troll people who are talking about a conversation. Like I just think it it becomes a lot more toxic with trending topics. So I hope they don't add that. I do think they should add hashtags. Um, I like that you can easily mute people. I think that is that's helped me yeah. get a lot of brand content, <laughs> unfortunately, out mm-hmm. of my feed, um, and helped me. I think that'll that'll keep away some of the more toxic actors from getting a lot of um, a lot of play on the the uh, platform. But we'll see. I mean, I just I feel like the strategic mistake they're making, in my opinion, is they're not allowing that like user creativity because the algorithm was so loaded the minute that you came in. Um, Mm -hmm. and like finding your value, finding your network saying, why is this for me becomes a lot harder when it's automatically about celebrity and influencers and brands and not about like me finding my own place, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Yep, definitely. 
Uh, well, I'm interested to see how this goes. I'm going to keep popping in on threads here and there, but honestly, I'm like, my brain cannot deal with another social media that I have to like maintain. <laughs> you right? and like, everyone. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, for me, it's been, it's been nice to just have a new space where I can, you know, dump some thoughts, but I was already kind of doing that on Twitter, so it's not much different. Um and I'm not consistent yeah. with that. Are you going to keep doing like, it on Twitter or, or do it in both places? Uh, I, I don't know. I guess it depends on where I am. I don't I don't know that I've tweeted recently now that I think of it. I'm like, wait a minute. I may have re I think I may have retweeted a few things. But um, yeah, I'm so inconsistent with those types of platforms in comparison, like LinkedIn. I schedule posts and like it's very strategic my instagram has become more strategic like i work with our coordinator to plan out things so yeah and then tiktok i i've tried to get on the bandwagon but it's just again another platform and it it's annoying because there are these little subtle differences so even if you want to repost the same content it still takes a little bit of work because you have to like format things a little bit differently um and so right. far i haven't come across any tools that accurately do that for you so it's a lot of work it's a lot of work um, it's a lot of work yeah i agree i'd i'd been mostly focusing on instagram and and linkedin as like the places yeah. at least i see the most professional value but it's even just mm-hmm. keeping up with those is tough for sure yeah. The, the last thing well, i'll say about threads because we have to acknowledge this is we are a year and a half out from a presidential election Yes. Twitter has become so right wing. Is threads now the place where Democrats and and people who are more left leaning are going to post again? I never thought Meta would be the one that hosts (laughs) that hosts (laughs) people from the left like it's crazy. But did we just like completely bifurcate our political conversation with one platform mainly dominating Democrats and one platform mainly dominating Republicans? I don't know if we can, can we accurately say that that's the case right now for threads? I don't know. I, but I, I imagine that there's going to try to be some research done into it, but I know mm-hmm. that the people that I follow that were so fed up with Musk are mostly on the democratic side. And those are the people I'm seeing on threads now. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that'll end up I being think... the case, you know, a year and a half is a long time, but yeah this this could be a really fascinating political and social experiment yeah threads the ball is in your court we're we're on standby we want to see what you do it's a lot of power don't fuck this up (laughs) right (laughs) (laughs) we're all rooting for you all right speaking of rooting for things let's talk about our one good thing for the week ready to end on a positive note adriel let's do it All right, what's good in your world this week, Adriel? Um, one thing that you actually shared with me um, that I thought was great, especially considering all the climate change, um, is that the Inflation Reduction Act that we saw uh, come into play about a year ago is actually, I guess, helping our us with our climate strategy. <laughs> um, and so the Inflation Reduction Act also referred to the IRA, not the IRA as we know it, but the other IRA um, is possibly the most significant piece of U.S. climate legislation yet is what is being said. Um, It includes things like tax credits for clean energy, energy storage, carbon capture, 
um, uh, ways to sort of promote, to measure, um, you know, and promote energy efficiency um, and reduce emissions, among some other things. So um, I'm really excited to see how that helps us. I hope it helps us because it is hot as Hades outside and that tells us a lot of things are wrong. Um, so yeah, we'll see. We'll be tracking this as we do with plenty of other I guess ESG, CSG related things, but um, curious to see how this also affects organizations and businesses as well. I, one of the things I saw was that um, it touched on domestic supply chains as well. So curious to see how that will impact businesses yeah. that uh, leverage that. Yeah, I mean, I've heard it put that the Inflation Reduction Act took the US from not having a climate strategy to being a leader in climate strategy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's... pretty significant in a way that I don't think we appreciate and especially going into a presidential election I feel like Biden should get some credit for Um, yeah it's you know like it it, it's 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 a big deal it's a big deal and we should be proud of it and have some hope you know we've been we've been talking about (laughs) we need our leaders to do something well they did a big thing and we should celebrate it yeah, if this thing gets implemented, um, it says that by 2035, overall emissions of the U.S. economy are likely to be 43 to 48% lower than they were in 2005, which is a big deal. This was reported by the Science Journal. So if we can actually implement this thing, like we, we might be doing the Earth some good and ourselves some good in return. Yeah, it's going to have an impact for years to come. And um, I'm looking forward to like other ways that we, you know, just the subsidies alone, like are just juicing the, you know, industries that we need to support a more sustainable economy. And so it's, it's super exciting. Definitely. All right. My one good thing this week is about a new drug that just got granted full approval by the FDA to treat Alzheimer's. And this is, I just, I love science for one thing. Just again, shout out to science. But this medicine is huge in terms of its ability to slow the course of the progress of Alzheimer's. So now the FDA is basically saying, go for it. It's going to expand coverage of the drug. It's going to expand insurance access for the drug. Um, Mm -hmm. People are calling it the beginning of a new era for treating Alzheimer's. And, you know... I, I I have a personal this is this is just personal thing about my anxiety. I have a personal fear of like one day contracting one of these diseases that just robs you of your like mental capacity like that just yeah like, the how this what this does to people that just makes them not them. I'm like mm-hmm. it's such a tragedy. You know what I mean? Like I would much rather like lose a limb than have a disease Same. that makes you lose yourself. And so I think this is huge news and I'm really excited to see it. And, and, you know, I, I think we should celebrate scientific wins wherever we can, wherever we can find them. Absolutely. I, you know, that's one of the, the things that I'm always amazed by in our world, despite all of the, the chaos (laughs) is just our ability to find all of these innovative treatments and medications, um, to help things like Alzheimer's. So really looking forward to seeing how this plays out. And hopefully people will be able to get some coverage because from personal experience, healthcare coverage is not fun (laughs) at all. Nope. 
It is not. Um, the other thing that this that the FDA approval clears the way for is uh, coverage by Medicare and Medicaid. So mm-hmm. those having trouble with their traditional insurance or who fall into you know the ability to get Medicare and Medicaid will be now be able to be covered by this. So again, good news where we can find it, especially about healthcare and health insurance, which you know is a cluster as we have talked about. Yes. <laughs> Well, what a positive note to end on. <laughs> Love that. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, Adriel, I guess I will I will see you on threads, right? I will see you on threads. Yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> yeah. Good times. All right. Uh, we'll talk to you next week. If you are loving the show, please do smash that subscribe button. Did I just pull that from YouTube? I think I did. Like, <laughs> you like did. the show, smash that subscribe button. And we will uh, see you next week. See y'all then. Thanks for listening to Leadership. Our producer is Dave Sandell. Think about starting your own podcast? Connect with him at davesandell.com. You can find more about Adrielle and her diversity, equity, and inclusion work at adrielleparker.com. You can also subscribe to her YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Parker for more candid discussions on DEI and for more insight on inclusive leadership. You can find more information about me, Caleb Gardner, and my work and hire me to speak on change leadership at calebgardner.com or 18coffees.com. And you can find my book, No Point B, Rules for Leading Change in the New Hyperconnected Radically Conscious Economy, wherever books are sold. <laughs>